Warning to any listeners, this episode will include descriptions that some people may find distressing. Thomas McKendrick went over Alan Menzies' house one night in December 2003. Alan was his best friend, and they planned to watch films together, like they had done so many times before. Thomas had no way of knowing he would become a pawn in his friend's twisted and delusional fantasy to become a vampire. And instead of going home, Alan would murder him, drink his blood, and even eat part of his head, and then claim, a film made me do it. This is the unbelievable story of how a young man became so obsessed with the vampire movie Queen of the Damned that he said it drove him to slaughter his closest friend in a grotesque attack, all so he could become one of the damned himself. Welcome to episode four of Unbelievable, a true crime podcast where each week I'll be taking you through the stories of some of the most disturbing crimes committed in the UK. They are often horrific, sometimes baffling, but always unbelievable. To explain each case, I'll be using reports from the police, the media, the trials, and statements from family, friends, and those involved. It's important to note here that these stories are 100% true. Alan Menzies was born on the 21st of April, 1981, to parents Linda and Thomas. He had short, light-coloured hair, which had a cowlick parting at his fringe. He was pale, with small features and a thin, narrow nose and mouth. His eyebrows were perfectly straight and flat. He had no facial hair and his ears sat small, close to the side of his head. Alan lived together with his mum and dad in Foldhouse, a village in West Lothian in Scotland. Linda was a lollipop lady. And although she loved her son, she knew from a young age that there was something wrong with him. He was quiet, very withdrawn and had few friends. In fact, he rarely went out. And his mum and dad tried, but they struggled to understand him. Alan's mum also described him as a loving boy, who was particular about cleaning, hoovering and dusting his room every day. But he also had some worrying traits. Alan was prone to spending long periods of time in his bedroom and could sometimes be found rocking back and forth and making noises. He also started self-harming from a young age, and when he was 14, Alan stabbed another schoolboy, causing him severe injury, and was detained for three years in St Mary's, a secure facility for young people in Glasgow. But that was not the only time he inflicted harm on himself or others. At 19 years old, Alan's parents separated, and he chose to live with his father, Thomas. Thomas had always tried to believe that Alan was like any other boy. He had his up and down days. But he noticed a change in his son after he got out of St. Mary's. Alan worked on and off as a security guard, maintained an interest in computers and ferrets. But he became more and more isolated and would rarely open his blinds. It was during this time that his fascination of horror, and in particular vampire films, started to grow. Queen of the Damned, released in 2002, became his favourite. 
and he reportedly watched it over a hundred times. So much so that a new copy of the video had to be bought for him when the original wore out. The movie follows a vampire called Lestat, who reinvents himself as a rock star. It features American singer Aaliyah, who plays Akasha, the queen of all vampires, who is awoken by Lestat's music. It was Akasha that became the focus of all Alan's attention. He began fantasizing that she would visit him and talk to him. His obsession was so strong that he even changed his first name to Leon to honor the assassin from the film. On December the 11th, 2003, he invited his friend Thomas McKendrick around to his house to watch the film. Thomas had broad shoulders and a friendly smile. He had short dark hair and dark eyes, prominent ears and a square jawline. At some point that evening, Alan said Thomas made a fateful mistake by insulting Akasha, the vampire he claimed to be in direct contact with. Alan took a hammer and bludgeoned Thomas over the head with it ten times. He then got a knife and stabbed him a further 42 times in the head, face and body. After committing the brutal murder, and while Thomas lay there motionless, Alan decided to collect some of his friend's blood in order to drink. He later admitted to having consumed two whole cups of the blood. And it was only then that he picked up a piece of his victim's head from the ground, a piece of Thomas's skull, and ate it. An act he believed would make him a vampire, but would only succeed in allowing the press to brand him a cannibal killer. He then tried to dispose of Thomas's body by initially dumping him in a wheelie bin outside his home. And only later did he take him to be buried in a shallow grave in a nearby woodland area. In the days and weeks following Thomas's disappearance, the Scottish police scoured the local area and searched Alan and his father's home. While they were at the home between the 11th and 12th of January, officers found items that disturbed them, including the Queen of the Damned video and one of the Vampire Chronicle books, Blood and Gold by Anne Rice, on which various passages had been written. One such passage had been written, The blood is the life. I have drunk the blood and it shall be mine, for I have seen horror. When police first questioned Alan, he told them he did not know what had happened to Thomas and agreed with them that it was a mystery. He said he had not harmed his friend and that he was still breathing when he left his house. It was on January the 18th when a constable by the name of Kenneth Gray spotted a forearm and hand sticking out of a drainage ditch while searching in the woods to the northwest of Foldhouse. Alan was arrested soon after, on the 22nd of January, and the officers who arrested him recalled how candid Alan had been on his journey to the station. He stated to DC Robert Lowe, who was driving the police car at the time, that he expected to get 20 to 25 years for what he had done. Alan's exact words were, I'm going to get 20 to 25 for this, for doing him with a hammer and my bowie knife, but I got his soul. DC Lowe and his colleague DC Marr, who was in the back of the car with Alan, cautioned him before he could say any more. But he went on to tell them, I drank his blood and ate a bit of his head. There was blood everywhere, and I buried him up the woods. When asked how he got the body to the woods, Alan replied, in my wheelie bin. DC Lowe 
said after they arrived at the station. He noted down what had been said in the car. Alan had also mentioned four stab wounds to the rear of Thomas's neck and using a kitchen knife and pushing it through his throat and into the brain. He also admitted to burying the weapons far from the body. In his first court appearance the next day, Alan said he would plead guilty if it meant he could go to a secure hospital facility. But he later pleaded not guilty to both counts against him, but would admit to culpable homicide on the grounds of diminished responsibility. This plea, however, was rejected by the Crown. The revelations he had made to the officers early on in his arrest were damning when read out in court. The officers themselves gave evidence, and under cross-examination, D.C. Lowe agreed with Mr. Donald McLeod, Allen's lawyer, that he was left horror-struck by the defendant's grotesque and matter-of-fact discussion. The officer added that the accused had not appeared upset, and was even softly spoken when he talked of the murder. Allen's legal team lodged a special defence of incrimination in respect of the second charge against him, attempting to defeat the ends of justice. They claimed two other men had helped Alan conceal the crime, but the defence had little effect. When Alan himself was questioned on the stand, he told the court that after the killing, he had become the character Vamp. His lawyer asked him, Are you telling us you now believe you are a vampire? Alan replied, yes. The lawyer said, Do you believe that you will gain immortality? Alan said, yes. Do you believe that you achieved that by killing Thomas? The lawyer asked, to which he replied, yes. While the trial was going on, letters sent from Alan in prison to his parents' home in West Lothian were found. The letters addressed to himself included threats to kill again. One of the notes was written to Akasha, his beloved movie character. In them he wrote, Dear Akasha, everything is going as planned. I will kill for you again soon. These humans are nothing but animals. Fodder for us. The weird vamp was scratched at the bottom of the letters and appeared to have been written in blood. It was Alan's father who told the court about the letters. They were sent while his son was in Sorton Prison, awaiting trial. The father of two said he had no idea when the letters had been sent to the home, because he'd had to move out for months while the police conducted their investigations. Officers had arrived at the house on January the 6th, 2003, which is when the family had to leave the property. Alan's dad told the court he had no involvement in the crime and did not help his son dispose of the body. His exact words were, I didn't cover up no crime, I had no involvement at all. On the 8th of October, a jury unanimously convicted Alan of the murder of his friend and of attempting to defeat the ends of justice by burying his body concealing clothing and attempting to remove bloodstains. He was sentenced at the High Court to life imprisonment and was to serve a minimum of 18 years behind bars. He was just 21 years old at the time. Alan always maintained he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia when he attacked his best friend. But only one report from a psychiatric consultant supported his claims. A total of three other psychologists rejected those findings and diagnosed him as a psychopath. While jurors were told that Alan did suffer from a severe personality disorder, prosecutors also told them that this did not mean he was insane. 
Instead, his extreme and violent behaviour were described as the imaginings of a vivid fantasist, which some doctors said did not mean he had a mental illness at all. After the trial, Judge MacDonald spoke directly to Alan and said that in his opinion, Alan was evil, violent and a highly dangerous man who was not fit to be at liberty. You subjected Thomas McKendrick to a savage and merciless attack, he said. You totally lack remorse. Thomas's mother, Sandra French, told reporters she was pleased with the verdict. The 54-year-old stood with her daughter, Sandra Mary McKendrick, outside the courthouse. She told the press, Alan had got what he deserved. But when Alan's own solicitor spoke out about his thoughts on the case, he said it highlighted the social stigma surrounding mental health. He told journalists that the continued taboo of schizophrenia and mental health and the lack of understanding or support in the community could only mean that tragedies like this are more likely to happen and not less. Looking at Alan's records, they paint a picture of someone who had been suffering with mental illness for most of his life. Before his stay in St Mary's Detention Centre in Glasgow when he was 14, he had already tried to overdose four or five times, sometimes serious enough that he had to be rushed to hospital. There were also the number of occasions when he threatened to overdose, but didn't go ahead with it. In St. Mary's, he'd attempted to hang himself, and after his stay, his mum Linda remembers finding suicide notes from him in the house. Then there were moments like when Alan was 20 years old. He had stood in the kitchen with his mum and taken a large knife and made a long, deep cut on his arm. Notes recorded after the event said there seemed no explanation for the outburst. When Alan was convicted, he was returned to Sorton Prison. Admission notes made by the guards said Alan seemed shocked by the length of his sentence. He was put under close observation, but by the end of October, he did not seem a high risk for self-harm. Moved to the block where the general population of the prison were held, he was noticed for always being in a low mood, keeping quiet, and inmates described him as a very unusual character. Given the amount of media attention paid to the trial, his fellow inmates teased him and called him names. Alan remained on suicide watch and was again placed in a high-risk cell in January the next year. This meant he was checked on every 15 minutes. Shortly after, he was categorised as low-risk, with observations on him being reduced to every 30 minutes. Months later, he was removed from the programme completely. Come May 2004, he was transferred to the state hospital Carstairs, having told the doctors he wanted to kill himself. From there, Alan was moved to HMP Shots. His file containing information about his mental health failed to go with him, but Alan told the prison wardens about it, and they put him on hourly observations. He was then moved from suicide watch altogether, moving into the mainstream prison, where he was slowly inducted into the place he would serve out the rest of his sentence. Prisoners in this induction area were largely granted better facilities and greater freedom. It was a non-threatening environment. During this time, Alan was described as a non-violent, non-disruptive inmate. He did not cause any discipline problems other than sometimes refusing to leave his cell and go to work when he first entered the centre. But he soon settled down. His move to B-Hall with the rest of the convicts was what hit him hard. Immediately after he was told he'd be moving, he smashed a jar of coffee against his cell wall and became irate 
threatening to stab anyone who'd come and take him to B-Hall. He offered to go into isolation rather than go there, but a prison guard managed to calm him down. While attempts were made to resolve the issue over the next few days, guards did eventually take him down to segregation unit, as Alan had requested. He was taken to an area known as the silent cell, which was soundproofed. The cell had no windows, contained only a mattress and a toilet pot. Prisoners were only usually placed there until they calmed down. No explanation was ever given as to why he was placed there, because Alan was nothing but calm when he was led down to the cell. Even so, he was stripped and searched, which was when guards found marks on his body and sought medical attention. When asked, Alan said he had scratched himself by accident a few days before. Prisoners should only remain in this type of segregation for up to three days. However, an extension was granted, and he remained there for six. Alan last saw his mum several days before he was taken to the silent cell. In that visit, she described her son as quite cheery. And other than noticing scratch marks on his arm, there was nothing to indicate he had a low mood. Alan was last seen around 5pm on November 14th when the food trolley went around the cells. Alan came to the hatch and took his tray. The next morning, on November the 15th, officers opened cell 5 where Alan had been staying and found him hanging there. On the wall beside him, he had smeared in blood the word justice. An inquiry was later held into Alan's death. It found a number of failings had been made on the part of the prison system. Alan's dad Thomas had written a list of questions he wanted answering about his son's death. But he sadly died before the inquiry's conclusion. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unbelievable. I'm your host, Bronwyn Weatherby. Please take a second to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, share with your friends and follow us on social media. The links are in the description. And please join us next week when we'll have another unbelievable story to tell you. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.